Good afternoon. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Aaron and I certainly missed you all last week. Uh, and while I'm missing Aaron this week, I'm thankful to be back uh, with our brethren here. Appreciate all of you very much. We uh, last month started a series, a once a month series, talking about God's church versus my church. And what our focus in that is, is that we want to focus not on looking for the, the type of church or the type of teaching that caters towards my preferences or what, what I would like in a church, but ultimately our goal should always be what does God want in his church? What is his standard? What is his uh, objectives for us? And so we started last month by talking about big business versus benevolence and how churches in, in many ways have... Uh, Tended and, and we might even uh, be tempted to tend towards uh, more of a corporate aspect to Christianity. And today I want us to consider the aspect of evangelism and similar concerns with it. Are we involved in soul saving or in salesmanship? In the early 1950s in India, uh, India had just become an independent nation. They used to be a colony. And they had just recently penned their new constitution. And so during that time, there was still a great deal of debate about the wording of their constitution. And regarding the freedom of religion, the constitution stated, each individual has the right to profess, practice, and propagate his the word propagate became a point of contention in some of these debates. And the story is told of a Hindu delegate who stood up and defended the wording saying, well, to the Christian, it is inherent to propagate his faith. If he is faithful to his faith, he must propagate his faith. So if you do not allow him to propagate his faith, you do not allow him to practice his faith. Now, I don't know if that story is true or not, but... I think it does illustrate the prime importance of evangelism in the Christian life. That you cannot practice the faith of Christianity without propagating it, without spreading that. You cannot be a genuine disciple without seeking to make disciples. You cannot receive the gospel without seeking to share the gospel. And you can't read through the pages of your New Testament without seeing Jesus' passion for sharing the good news of salvation. And the early church's passion as they go out even in the midst of persecution, spreading the word. But in modern American culture, evangelism has almost become taboo. You know, the, the idea of actually trying to convert somebody is seen as very presumptuous and arrogant and interfering with other people's business. And so for many churches, the focus has shifted from making converts to making consumers or customers. And I think that is a, a big temptation that we need to be aware of as, as we look introspectively, as we turn that mirror on ourselves. The message sometimes becomes, well, we won't tell you how to live your life, but we just hope we can convince you to come to our church. And we began viewing evangelism as the work of the church marketing director. That it is more about salesmanship and less about soul saving. What would Jesus say about this? 
how did he approach the work of evangelism? What kind of pattern for evangelism do we see in the New Testament church? And so if our focus is not on my church, what's going to attract the most people, what's going to be the right marketing strategy to, to get people interested in church, if my focus is on God's church, on what he wants, then how is that going to affect the work of evangelism? I want us to start out in Matthew 28, considering Jesus's goal. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus, as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, gives what we often call the Great Commission to his apostles. He says there in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is Jesus' great commission? What is the church's mission statement that Jesus is giving us here? To go out and make disciples. Not to make customers or consumers, not to create a fan club or get a bunch of Twitter followers and YouTube subscribers. That, that's not what it's about. We're making disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. One who is going to observe all things commanded, who is going to respect the authority of the king and submit to it and follow it. A disciple is a convert who will obey the teachings of Jesus. We want to get a good picture of what discipleship is and what the goal of all of this is as we seek to make disciples. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Here Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship and what true discipleship is. Starting in verse 25, Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Later on, down in verse 33, he says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? I think Jesus is here using very strong hyperbolic language to emphasize a point. He's not literally saying that his disciples are those who hate their family. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that we, if we are going to be his disciples, need to decisively remove these other things from the throne of our life. That my family can't be at the throne of my life anymore. My own desires, my own pursuits in life, my own possessions can no longer be on the throne of my life. I need to denounce that, denounce my first allegiance to that, and replace it with a deeper and fuller devotion to Jesus himself. No longer is what my family thinks of me or my own personal feelings and preferences, my own possessions or pursuits in life going to be in the driver's seat. I need to kick that out of the driver's seat, push it to the back, and let Jesus take control of my life. That is genuine discipleship. And so here in Luke chapter 14, as Jesus has this great crowd following him, what's his message to them? You need to count the cost. You need to understand what it means to be my disciple. You are taking up your cross. 
That means you're crucifying self. You're no longer going to live for self. From now on, you're going to have to be fully devoted to following me. That is discipleship. And so, brethren, following Jesus is not a casual endeavor. It's not something that we just do on the side. It's something that is all or nothing. And so as we go out and spread the gospel, we need to remember what it is that we're seeking to make. Not just customers, not consumers, not Facebook followers. We're seeking to make disciples, people who are fully and completely devoted to Jesus as King within their life. And so that's going to affect the way that we approach evangelism and certainly affect the way that Jesus approached evangelism. Jesus was very cautious here not to string along the unconverted. He had no interest in seeing how many followers he could get or growing his his fan club. To Jesus, it was not about numerical growth. It was about the genuine devotion of his followers. Numerical growth was useless without proper devotion. In fact, it could be harmful to his cause. He intentionally turned away the half-hearted. Look back in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is a very similar situation to Luke chapter 14. Again, there are people who are wanting to follow Jesus, and Jesus gives them a warning. Read with me in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59, And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine for a moment what our reaction might be, our initial reaction might be to somebody who would uh, approach us with this type of attitude. I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. What what would our initial reaction be? And, And I think should be. We'd be excited. We would say, great, let, let's go, let's, let's get you baptized, you can become a member of the church, you can start serving, we're really excited. And I think that's good and, and right, that we should have that excitement about someone wanting to follow Jesus. But notice Jesus' caution here. What's Jesus' response when somebody comes up to him and says, I want to follow you wherever he goes? Jesus says, wait a second, do you understand what that means? This is not a health and wealth gospel. This doesn't mean that if you follow me, you're going to have everything that you want. Make sure you have an accurate picture of what it is that you're committing your life to. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. In fact, earlier in the same chapter, Jesus and his disciples had been coming into Samaria, and the Samaritans had rejected him, and it seems that that very night he hadn't had a place to lay his head. Jesus said, that's what you're signing up for. Do you understand that? Here, this other man in verse 59 Uh, is told to follow Jesus, and he says, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, that sounds like a pretty reasonable request, right? But what does Jesus say? He says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
I think there are many points that could be made from this, but one that I think is fascinating. In the old law, there were two situations where uh, somebody would be prevented from burying their own family members. Burying their own family members was considered somewhat of a, a sacred right that they needed to take care of. But there are two situations under the old law where they would be forbidden from doing that. One is if they were under a Nazarite vow. They were not allowed to defile themselves even by a family member. We read about that in Numbers chapter 6. Or the other situation in Leviticus 21 is the high priest was not allowed to defile himself even by a family member burying them. I think maybe part of the point that Jesus is making here, just like those people had a sacred obligation that was more important than burying their family member, Jesus is saying discipleship to me is a holy and sacred obligation that trumps everything else in your life. And certainly the point is made there, uh, let the dead bury their own dead, that your family, your father's physical body is just going to rot in the ground. It's not that important. What matters is something much more important than that, the spiritual life that Jesus is promising, that, that he uh, is proclaiming to the world around them. And then we have in verse 61 this one who again says, permit me first to do something else. Permit me first to go and say goodbye to those at home. Uh, now, I don't know that Jesus condemns him for this. In fact, we see Elisha does this very thing before he follows Elijah in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. But he does warn him in verse 62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You better make sure that, that if you are going to follow me, that when you put your hands to that plow, it's forward from then on out. And so we need to make sure that as we share the gospel with other people, while we should be excited about people coming to the Lord, wanting to follow Jesus, we should be, be reaching out, trying to help people come to the Lord to experience the salvation that Jesus can provide. We need to have the same caution that Jesus had in Luke 14 and here in Luke 9, saying you need to understand what it means to be a disciple. The type of commitment, the type of devotion that you are entering into. I'm afraid sometimes in our eagerness to share the gospel, we end up, maybe inadvertently, using a bait-and-switch approach. We, we, we try to attract people to the gospel with something other than the gospel, and then hopefully once we've strung them along enough, then we can kind of switch it and give them the gospel, and maybe then they'll accept it. That, that's not what we see within the scriptures at all. We might want to attract people to the gospel by social programs or free meals or entertainment-oriented assemblies, but at the end of the day, if that's what they're attracted by, then what do you think it is that they're converted to? It's often what attracts us that is what we are converted to. Notice in John chapter 6, if you'd like to turn your Bible there, Jesus had, had worked a miracle in this context. He had fed the 5,000. I think we see both him proving his, his deity and doing that, as well as his compassion for the people. But notice his, his caution here in verse 26 and 27. As all these people who had seen this miracle of, of feeding the 5,000, of turning these five uh, loaves and two fish into enough food to provide for this multitude, 
They were very excited and eager to follow Jesus. They follow him even to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And yet when they approach him, in verse 25 and verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus doesn't look out at this multitude and say, hey, we attracted a crowd, this is great. Now I can teach them. Jesus says, you guys aren't here for the right reasons. If you're just here to fill your bellies, you might as well go home. And in fact, as Jesus continues through John 6, he starts giving them a teaching that is very hard to swallow. He teaches them later on in verse 51 through 53, uh, and really throughout this section, about him being the living bread. And if they want to have life, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Eating flesh and drinking blood in, in general would have been rather repulsive, even more to the Jews who uh, had a prohibition of, of drinking any type of blood. And so in verse 60 of this chapter, it says, Therefore many of his, his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And finally in verse 66, it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Here at the beginning of John 6, Jesus has a multitude coming to see him. And by the end of the chapter, he has multitudes of people going away by droves. What's the problem? Did, did Jesus just not approach this right? Did he you know, slip up here in how he handled the situation? Do, do you think if Jesus wanted to, he could have kept those people? You think he could have fed them again? Well, certainly. He had the power to. He did it once. He could do it again. You think he could have given them maybe an, a little bit easier teaching? Something, you know, easier to swallow so that they wouldn't have all turned away? But that's not what Jesus does. Knowing their hearts, knowing their motives, knowing what the result of all of this would be, Jesus gives them a teaching that he knows is going to turn many of them away. Because Jesus isn't interested in a fan club. Jesus isn't interested in just uh, attracting half-hearted followers. Jesus is interested in true disciples. Those who, like Peter, at the end of this chapter, are going to continue to follow him, being convicted by what they had seen and heard. Even if they don't understand it, they're going to keep digging. They're going to keep following. And so... While Jesus certainly did do signs to prove his identity as the Christ, and I think we even see him doing miracles out of compassion for the people, he never used that as a, a gimmick to attract people to the gospel. In fact, he made certain that that is not what people were attracted to, um, that they saw the power of his teaching and his message. And so... We see Jesus' emphasis throughout his teaching. Rather than attracting people through worldly incentives, Jesus sought to attract people by God's word itself. Notice here in John 6, verse 44 and 45. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If these people were going to come to Jesus, what is it that was going to draw them? Was it the physical things, that, the, the food that was going to draw them? No, it was the Father who was going to draw them. People may be attracted to church by many different things. People may be attracted by social interactions, by uplifting emotional experiences, motivational messages, or entertaining music. But genuine disciples of Jesus are drawn by something deeper. They are drawn by God himself. A desire to know him, a desire to learn from him, a desire to hear his voice within the scriptures. And so we need to make sure that the way we present the gospel puts the focus there. That we're not distracting from the emphasis upon God's word and God's message. The church must not try to appeal to what anybody and everybody is seeking. I'm afraid that's what we do sometimes. We want to get more people in the church. And so we think, well, what are people looking for? Maybe if we start presenting what people are looking for, then we can get more people. That's not Jesus' approach. Now, Jesus' approach is to put out there what would attract people who are looking for God. Consider the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, we won't take the time to read through all of this, but you can go ahead and turn your Bibles over there. Matthew chapter 13, you remember... In this parable, how is the work of evangelism portrayed here? Try to think for a moment about exactly what this sower is doing. Does this sower act like any normal farmer would? Because the sower doesn't spend any time plowing the field. He doesn't spend any time cultivating the field or fertilizing the field. And he wastes a bunch of seed by putting the seed out on a bunch of unprepared ground. When we hear this story, especially for those of the agricultural society of that day, you think they would look at this sower and think, he's being pretty foolish. This is not how you go about it. This is not a very smart thing to do to just throw the seed anywhere and everywhere. And yet Jesus uses this unconventional illustration to describe the work of evangelism. I think that the primary lesson that we're taught here is that the success of God's message, the success of evangelism, has to do with the power of the seed and the condition of the heart. First and foremost, that is what is going to determine how the message is received more than anything else. And so when we start thinking that evangelism depends on my marketing strategies and my sales tactics and picking the right approach for the right person and making the message more relevant to the interests and concerns of 21st century society, we've missed the point. Not that there isn't any relevance to, to trying to start where people are at, 
or season our speech with salt or become all things to all men. We, we certainly see those concepts throughout the scripture. I don't want to deny that. But at the end of the day, what's going to determine whether or not somebody responds to the gospel is not whether or not I figured out the right marketing approach. It's the power of the seed and the condition of the heart. And so God hasn't called us to genetically modify his seed so that it can sprout better in these other soils. That's, That's not what we're called to do. We're called to sow the seed and trust in its power to do its work. And, and think, as, as Jesus tells this parable, think about how this message would have been received by its initial hearers. Can, can you imagine somebody getting up and saying, so one day there was this sower, and he went out into the field, and he threw some seed on uh, some soil next to the road, and some birds came and ate that, and he threw some seed in the rocky soil, And it sprouted up real good right at first, and then the sun came and it all died away. And then he threw some seed over in the the thorny grounds, and it got choked out. It didn't bear fruit, but there was some that fell on the good ground, and it produced fruit. And uh, if you have an ear to hear, uh, hear, that's my message for today. You'd say, wait a second, what are you talking about? And yet that's how Jesus approaches it here. Why? Well, his disciples ask him that very question. And verse 10 says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? You, you can almost just, uh, imagine that they might be kind of concerned here. Jesus, you know, people aren't exactly understanding what you're saying. Maybe you want to teach something a little bit differently. What does Jesus say? Matthew 13, starting verse 11, Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Jesus says, this isn't any accident. I didn't mess up on my sermon for today. No, this is precisely what I intend to do. That there are those who are seeking, and they will find. Those who are wanting to dig a little deeper, who are wanting to find out what this message is. But there are those who do not have open and honest hearts, and even the opportunities they do have are going to be taken away from them. That was Jesus' approach. Brother, we need to have a greater faith in the power of God's word to accomplish its work. When we start thinking that evangelism is dependent upon me, we've entirely missed the point. God's word is sufficient to accomplish its work. And its work doesn't just involve saving the lost. It also has power to discern hearts. God's word in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word is going to sift between that thorny soil and that rocky soil and that wayside soil and that good soil. And we need to allow it to do that work. Isaiah chapter 55, if you'd like to turn there for a moment. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8. 
You might be familiar with uh, this passage. Starting in verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, on a very surface level, they're saying God doesn't think the way that we think. God, God doesn't use the, the methods or have the standards or, or the definitions that, that we have. God thinks on a higher plane. Well, what's the application here? Back in verse 7, he told the wicked to forsake his way. He says, you need to forget your thoughts and start thinking God's thoughts. And we see that even more clearly as we continue in this passage. Verse 10 says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God often doesn't operate the way that we think he should. His message doesn't always make sense from an earthly perspective. But when he sends his thoughts down from heaven to communicate his will to us here on earth, we can be sure that it will accomplish his purpose. And so we don't need to improve upon God's business model or alter his message to make it more relevant or attractive. I think sometimes we try really hard to make the gospel more relatable to the felt needs of our society, more down to earth. And I'm afraid that we can do that so much that we make it an earthly message. We bring it so far down to earth that we rob it of its heavenly glory. Now certainly, there, there is a place for addressing people where they're at, we, we see uh, Paul becoming all things to all men, him approaching different people in different ways uh, because of, of where they were that in their understanding. We see seasoning our speech with salt. I'm not denying that we need to try to do that. But at the end of the day, that is not what's going to determine the outcome. When I think that it's up to me and my approach then I lack the type of faith that I should have in the power of God's word itself. That is where it's at. That is where the power is. And so we need to trust in God's word to do its work. And our highest goal in evangelism should not be to sweeten up God's word so that it's attractive to the world around us. Our highest goal in evangelism to, should be to present God's word in such a way that is consistent with the character of Christ and is consistent with the message of the gospel. So present it in such a way that I get out of its way and it can do its work. That is Jesus' model for evangelism, is to let God's word do its work, to sow the seed. And along with that, we see that Jesus has a different measure of success. Was Jesus a successful evangelist? You know, when you look at John 6 and you see people going away from him in droves at the end of the chapter, you might think, at least from today's standards, he wasn't very successful. 
When you see Jesus dying upon the cross, having been forsaken by all of his disciples, you might say that he's a pretty failed evangelist. But I think if that's the way we view it, we need to change our perspective. Now certainly Jesus is the master teacher. Jesus is the greatest evangelist. What, what about the Old Testament prophets? What about Noah? Was Noah a successful preacher? At the end of the day, it was only him and his family who were saved in the ark. What, what about Isaiah and Ezekiel who were commissioned to go preach to people who weren't going to listen to them, by and large? And yet, knowing that beforehand, God commissioned them to go and to preach. I think we need to recognize that God is not only glorified when people respond to the gospel. God is glorified when the gospel is preached. When we are faithful to share his message, regardless of how people respond to it. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, we're told, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Jesus says that we should expect rejection. That we should expect people not to respond favorably, in fact, to respond unfavorably towards the gospel at times. He says later on in verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. If our highest goal in evangelism is for everybody to speak well of us, everybody to, to think well of us, everybody to be attracted to what's going on here, then we've missed it. Now we need to make sure that we're pleasing to God, that we're faithful to his message, and he will be glorified in that. I want to look at one other passage again in Luke chapter 15. I want us to see that God is not a God of the crowds as much as he is a God of the individual. Notice here in Luke 15, as the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is reaching out to sinners and tax collectors and eating with them. In verse 3, he tells them this parable. He says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus leaves the 99 to go out and seek the one. Certainly we do see in the New Testament situations like Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people come to the Lord. But we also see Philip commissioned to go teach the Ethiopian eunuch. It's just a man riding in a chariot on his way back to Ethiopia. We see Peter commissioned to go to Cornelius' household. We see Paul called to bypass Asia and go to Macedonia where he can teach the Philippian jailer and Lydia. God is not just interested in crowds and fan clubs. He's interested in individual souls. 
And we need to have that same focus. I think sometimes when, when we're not attracting many people and we labor for, for years in the gospel, and then only one or two people respond to the gospel, only one, one or two people are saved. How, how discouraging. Now, Jesus' attitude is that that one person is a soul made in his image, a soul so valuable that he shed his own blood to pay the price that it could be saved. We need to be rejoicing greatly at, yes, one soul. That's Jesus' attitude. That's God's attitude. So we need to stop viewing evangelism as something where we're, we're just growing a church and making it bigger and, and getting a lot of people in the door. That, that's, that's not Jesus' model. That's not his attitude. We need to have Jesus' focus. Are we evangelizing the way that Jesus did? Are we making genuine disciples? Are we trusting the power of God's word? Are we measuring success the way that he does? We cannot truly practice our faith without propagating our faith. The, the Great Commission, our, our prime directive, is to go out and to make disciples. We can't truly be disciples without seeking to make disciples. We can't truly receive the gospel without seeking to share the gospel. So, brethren, let's get to work. Let's sow the seed, but let's make sure it's God's seed, not something else. We can be sure that it has the power and it will accomplish its purpose. What about you today? Have you responded to the gospel? That passage that we just read in Luke chapter 15 shows us how much God cares for even a single soul. A single soul separated from him is so valuable that he regards it uh, more valuable uh, than Jesus' blood. That's the price he was willing to pay. His own son's blood that that one soul, that you can be saved, that I can be saved. If you have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, know that God wants to restore a relationship with you. He wants to have you as his child. He wants to have you in his presence for all eternity. And by God's grace, by his great love, if you're willing to come to him, if you're willing to surrender your life to him, to bury the old man of sin and baptism, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. And you can have a hope of living in his presence for all eternity. You can be his disciple, his follower. You can put your hand to the plow and not look back. Have you done that? Are you living that? If not, will you make the necessary change today? If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing.